I don't um I don't talk much about uh, at least publicly what we're transitioning into here as a family, um, and I don't mean to spend a lot of time doing that this morning. Just simply to say that uh, I catch myself um, each week. Uh, our lives are crazy town right now because, in addition to trying to finish well here and, and be a good pastor to you all, I um, we're um, trying to figure out how to. Well, we sold a house in 24 hours, and then now we're buying a house, and we're doing all this stuff long distance, and we're trying to plant the early stages of a church and make all the preparations for that. And somewhere along the line, um, you know, 30 years ago, the Lord saw fit to begin to call an introverted young man to be uh, not only a, a missionary church planter, but to be a preacher as well. And uh, in the midst of all the crazy town that is our life, signing legal documents, and even today at 4 o'clock, um, there's a, another church in South Florida that's going to be meeting their whole congregation to hold a church council meeting to, to vote on being our supporting church um, when we get to Florida. So we're praying about those kind of things and providing all the, the information that they, they need to make a healthy decision. So, But then... Um, I'm reminded when I come to study the Word of God every week, like, now this is like what the the fourth to last time that I get to do this. Because when you plant a church, um, Michael will tell you, you plant a church, like the last thing on your radar is preaching. Um, that's so far down the road. So the thing that I probably love to do the most, I won't be doing for a while, um, maybe a, a year or two. Um, before I get to stand in front of a congregation and preach again. So I, whenever I get to my study or I, I sit down and study at home and I start working on these sermons every week now, it's like a little more cherished every single week. Uh, I can't tell you the joy and privilege that it is to be able to spend you know, 10, 12, 15 hours pouring through the Scriptures and studying the Word of God and asking Him what He would have me to say. So I just want you to know, like this this time... Maybe special to you, but it's really special to me. Um, so, if you would turn in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 18, and we're going to pick up in verse 28. This last day of Jesus's life. Last week we talked about the uh, scene that played out where he was arrested in the garden. Today we'll talk about the end of his life in respect to this man named Pontius Pilate. Next week, we will talk about his uh, crucifixion and then his death. Uh, and then we'll get to the really good stuff, which is the beginning, which we call life everlasting. Um, so let's go to the Word of God. Let's start right there in, in uh, chapter 18 of John's Gospel, beginning in verse 28. John tells us that then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. 
This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If any, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now we'll pause there. We'll pick up with the 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 rest of the story in a second. But I want to talk about this man who's a bit of an enigma named Pontius Pilate. Who was Pontius Pilate? Well, the fancy term for what he was or who he was was a a procurator of Judea. Another way to word that is a, a governor. His job was to answer to Caesar. That was his direct supervisor. There was nobody higher who Pilate reported to except for the Roman emperor. His job, Pilate's job, meant being responsible for the financial and all the administrative aspects over the country to which he was given by Caesar to manage. That country was Judea, what uh, would later come to be called Palestine. Now, Pilate would have been very accomplished. He would have been accomplished politically. He would have been accomplished militarily to even rise to such a position. But we know this. The Jews hated Pilate, and the feeling was mutual. Pilate hated the Jews. But they were in this awkward position. They had to figure out how to get along. Because the one person who was Pilate's boss, the only boss he had, was telling Pilate, get along. The things that made Pilate effective in what he was, his his brutality, his um, decision-making, were also the things that were prone to get him into trouble. So he was constantly walking this fine line with the Jews. He had to live in country. He had to maintain a military in country of people who hated him and wanted to overthrow him. And the whole time, Caesar is here telling Pilate, no insurrections, no riots. I want no problems in Judea. Get along. Tough one. Because the other problem with Pilate was that he was a bit feckless. He was a vacillating sort of fellow. He, he tried to play the middle and it usually backfired on him. The Jews hated Pilate from the very moment he walked into Jerusalem. Because the Romans had a tradition that when they walked into a town, they took military control over a region, 
their their standard was a pole that had uh, like an eagle on top of it, and they held it high. And the Jews saw this as a symbol of idolatry, so they would rebel against the uh, the the uh, Romans. So Caesar agreed and said, "All right, we won't." carry that standard in Jerusalem if it's offensive to you. But um, Pilate wouldn't adhere to that. So when he marched in to take over Jerusalem and all his cohorts came in with him, he carried the standard high. And uh, from that moment on, it created a, a massive hatred of the Jews towards this governor that had been given to them. They hated him too because... Pilate wanted to make Jerusalem a more metropolitan city. So in order to do that, he needed more of a water supply to Jerusalem so the city could grow. So he decided that he was going to build an aqueduct, uh, which he did. And he felt the best way to pay for it was to steal money out of the temple treasury of the Jews in order to pay for the aqueduct. Now you can go there today and you can see the aqueduct. I have a picture of myself standing underneath the aqueduct pretending to hold it up. Um, And it's still there to this day. It's an amazing feat of engineering for the time. But the way he paid for it was offensive. He chose to go into the temple, take the money out of the treasury, and use that. Now you can see why the Jews hated this man so much. But they couldn't hate him too much today. Because they needed him. They needed him to pull this off. Historians tell us that Pilate's downfall ultimately was when some Samaritans decided to go on a pilgrimage to the top of Mount Gerizim, uh, and they wanted to try and find some golden artifacts that had been left there from the time of Moses. For whatever reason, Pilate had animosity towards those particular Samaritans, so he sent Roman legionnaires to chase them, hunt them down on their quest to the top of Mount Gerizim, and he had them slaughtered. That was it. History kind of tells us or alludes to the fact that that was the last straw with Caesar. Caesar had Pilate removed. And we don't know much about what happened to Pilate after that. There's just sort of uh, urban myths and legends as to what happened to him. I think it's important to, as we look at this today, though, to remember that in this particular instance, it's Pilate who's playing the main role and Jesus, who seems to be on his last leg. We have no idea what happened to Pilate. We have every understanding of what happened to Christ and how the world was changed through him. Pilate disappeared into antiquity. So I want to ask the question this morning. We can kind of continue on this thread of Jesus' arrest, his betrayal, his arrest, his his, uh, mocking, scourging, crucifixion, death, and there's, there's a, 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 and I mean this in a reverential way, but there's this ongoing irony or hilarity to this whole thing that's playing out. Remember last week I talked about the fact that there is no way Jesus was going to be arrested no matter how many Roman legionnaires they sent unless Jesus was willing to go. And the same thing stands true as Jesus stands here before Pilate the most powerful man in this entire region, answers only to one person, Caesar, and this whole thing would not be going down unless it was for the willingness of Christ to be here. 
So let's look here at how our Lord was wronged in this whole scenario. And maybe, maybe this morning you see yourself in this situation. The first way we see the Lord being wronged is this. The judge of all, which is Christ, stands here being judged by petty humans. That's the first hilarious fact to me. The judge, Jesus Christ, of all mankind, has to stand here and be judged by these petty human beings. Here sits our Lord wedged between a vacillating regional governor and manipulative religious leaders. That's who He is. That's where He's at. And He's allowing His fate to be determined by their own sinful hearts. Think about that for a second. That the perfect, innocent Lamb of God, the judge of all mankind, would allow Himself to be placed into the hands of those who are sinners, those who have no authority over Him whatsoever. These religionists, their hearts are full of pride and hatred. You can just sense it in the text. Their their underlying anger and resentment, they're seething. They're seething. Their shallow pettiness could be seen by their, their willingness, think about this, to kill an innocent man Look at this irony. They were going to turn this man over to Pilate in order that they might kill him, an innocent man, yet they won't step foot into the praetorium where Pilate is. They won't step foot into the hall of the Gentiles. Why? Because they don't want to defile themselves for the Passover. They're going to kill an innocent man but they don't want to be appeared, they don't want to be seen as defiled because they have associated with the Gentiles going into the Passover. This is the kind of people that Christ has turned his destiny over to. And before we kind of snicker and we think, you know, what an awful bunch of people, the Lord still today, if each one of us assesses our own life in a very real way, the Lord has turned Himself over in order to see those who are petty and uh, manipulative and seething and prideful to see their lives redeemed. That's you and I. I see myself in Pilate. I see myself in the religious leaders of the day. The arrogance, the, the pettiness, the pride the um, the judging and, and critical spirit, I see myself in these men. And yet the Lord still lays Himself down. I understand Pilate to be a heathen Gentile, but the religious rulers had allowed their focus to become something else. They had allowed their focus to become method. They had allowed their focus to become the ceremony. It had become the tradition. It had become cynicism. And now it had become about personal attack and murder rather than the heart of God. What's the heart of God? What was God trying to get out of these men? Love, peace, unity, Joy. That's the heart of Christ. In John 13, if you remember, 
the Lord Jesus had said, Dear children, I'll be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. Now in this scenario playing out, you can also see the animosity between these two groups being Pilate and the religious leaders. You can, you can see it clearly here. Pilate even calls their bluff twice. At least he tries to. He says to them, um, he, he asks them what the charge was. And did you notice their response? Let, let me read it again. Um, he said in verse 29, so Pilate went outside to them, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. That's it. They didn't answer the question, did they? They said, Pilate said, what do you charge him with? And they said, just trust us. That's what they're saying. Just trust us. All right, so first of all, Pilate knows they got, they really have nothing legitimate on him, this being Jesus. But then the second thing here, he calls their bluff. He says to them, judge him yourselves. Well, they can't do that either. Because they don't want to judge him, they want to kill him. And it is un, unacceptable. They can't crucify this man. They don't have the power to do it. They need a hired hit man. They need Pilate. That's what they're trying to manipulate in this whole scenario. Pilate, he sees what's going on here. He's not stupid. He knew their game. We're told in Matthew 27, verse 18, in the other, one of the other accounts of Jesus before Pilate, Matthew said this, for he, Pilate, knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. His heart, he knew what was going on here. He knew the ridiculousness of this game. Yet whatever power the two parties felt they had over Christ at this moment, and whatever power they felt that they had over one another, or that they were trying to exert over one another, here stands the innocent Son of God in the midst of all of it. Standing there. This power play going on back and forth. The pride, the anger and hatred towards one, towards the other. The calling of bluff, the political game that was being played. And here stands Christ in the middle of it. Knowing full well what his destiny is. And what must have been going through his mind at this point? Maybe what he already foreknew, which was this in Revelation 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on the throne before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Here stands Christ in the middle of this petty political game, this hatred, and he stands in the middle knowing full well 
that there is no one who is going to hold more power in all of eternity than Him. It is Him who will destroy the destroyers of the earth. It is Him who will judge the judges of the earth. It is Him who will rule over the kings to come. It is Him who will judge over every man, the living and the dead, that someday the roles will be reversed and that Pilate will have to stand before Him. And you know what is not going to work for Pilate at that time? To say to Jesus, yes, but what is truth? Because Jesus' response is going to be the same that He tells us in John 14.6. Pilate's going to say, Hey Jesus, I know I'm here, but who are you to judge me? What is truth? And Jesus is going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Which brings us to the second absurdity here in the way Jesus was wronged. Here you have the author of all truth questioned and maligned by liars. Not that that ever happens today. Not that Jesus is ever wronged, lied about, or that His truth is twisted for personal gain. Not that people do that today. Not in the church, that's for sure. But to understand the fact that Christ stands in this absurd situation, we should rewind to John's prologue. Let's go back to John 1.1 and read two verses here just for perspective. They're standing before Jesus thinking that they each hold the avenue, they hold everything about truth. And yet there's this from John in 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then a little later in verse 14, he goes on to say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is only Son, is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the very embodiment of divine truth. The word that John uses here is the word logos. It means truth. It means the Word. And in this case, the divine Word of God. Everything that's true about God is standing right there before Pilate and before those religious leaders. And yet he's accused by liars. He's questioned by a politician. Here he stood. This is a cutting reminder from Pilate. He says to the religious leaders, he says to Jesus, he says, but your own people turned you over to me. Your own people turned you over to me. What does that say about you, Jesus? That your own people would turn you over. And Jesus assures Pilate that he's not a revolutionary. So I'm not a revolutionary. Because I'm, I'm a king, but I'm a king not of this world. See, the threat for Pilate in Jesus would have been if Jesus was a revolutionary. If Jesus was an insurrectionist, Jesus was somebody who's going to try and um, take power from Rome. And Jesus is saying to Pilate, it's not my thing. If that was my thing, don't you think people who follow me would be fighting you right now? My kingdom is not of this world. And in essence, what Jesus is saying is, I'm doing the work right now of a different kingdom. And it's a kingdom that Pilate's going to have to fall down on his face before someday. 
And Pilate's response to Jesus. Well, Jesus assures Pilate he's not a revolutionary. And then he says his mission and his kingdom is one of truth. That's what he tells Pilate. What I'm doing is about truth. And Pilate's response to him is, what is truth? It's heartbreaking. It's really a heartbreaking response and it's quite telling. And we don't know. I mean, this thing has been... This, this question that Pilate brings up, it's been debated a lot. It's been uh, smarter people than me have tried to pull this thing apart and figure out what exactly Pilate was saying. But at the heart of it, we know this. Pilate did not comprehend who Christ was. Pilate did, did not... Maybe Pilate had been so inundated with Greek philosophy. He had been so inundated with Hellenistic teaching. He was sick of the... Uh, the, the Socratic method, he had been um, inundated with education, and he had come to the point like a lot of um, really educated, astute people do. They get to the point where they, they think they know everything, and yet they know nothing. And Pilate says to Jesus, Jesus is trying to teach Pilate what real truth looks like, and Pilate says, what is truth? What is truth? Because he's, he's not seeing truth in Christ. And everybody eventually has to wrestle with that same question that Pilate wrestled with. It's the Gospel. Everybody is confronted with the truth of Christ as the sacrificial Lamb of God, the, the truth that Christ came into the world as a missionary, that He came to seek and save the lost, that Christ came into the world to die on a cross in order to redeem mankind from their sins, that the only way in which man can be saved is through the name of Jesus Christ. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, that then you will be saved. That there's no other way that man can be saved except Jesus. That's the truth. And everybody has to wrestle with that. And sadly, there are many people that they're confronted with that truth and they turn their back on it and they say, yeah, but what is truth? The word... If you haven't realized this, I want us to wake up as a church and realize this. We want to have intelligent conversations in the world today about truth. But it's difficult, right? Because we are now in a postmodern culture that believes that all truth is relative. That your truth is true and that my truth is true, even if they're on polar opposite ends of the spectrum. Now, common sense would say, an intelligent person might realize that if what you say is true and what I say is true and they're completely opposite, one of us is wrong. But how deceived have we become as a culture to where we're willing to say whatever truth, it doesn't matter. Your truth, my truth, it's all truth. What is truth anyway? That's what Pilate's saying. Who you are, Jesus, is irrelevant to me. What is truth? And someday we wake up and truth is going to be staring us in the face. And there's going to be nowhere to run. The third wrong here, or hilarity of this whole thing, in which Jesus was wronged, point three, the innocent lamb passed over for a known criminal. We know this story. Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. The pressure was mounting upon Pilate. That's evident. He recognizes the innocence of this man. So in an effort to appease their lust for blood, he offers to release Jesus and he offers to do it through a diplomatic way. Pilate finally thinks he has his out, right? Passover's coming, guys. 
Look, every year we have this tradition, um, and Pilate probably hated this tradition, honestly, but he was willing to forego it, his own beliefs, give them something to chew on here. He says, all right, all right, all right, all right. I'll appeal to the masses. Surely they're not going to choose this wicked, evil, insurrectionist. The translation we read today says robber. That's like not a good translation. Rebel, insurrectionist uh, is a better term for who Pilate was. He was seeking to lead a revolution to overthrow Rome out of Judea. And they say, surely they're not going to choose a wicked dude like Barabbas over this innocent man, Jesus. And the shock to him must have been immense when they look at him and they say, no, no, give us Barabbas. We want the wicked. Give us evil. Give us evil over innocence. And still today, the world cries out. Give us evil over Christ. That's what we want. Give me Kim Kardashian over Christ. Give me Kanye West over Christ. Give me MTV culture over Christ. Give me any politician over Christ. We still cry it out today. The great irony here is that wicked man, wicked men chose to reject Pilate's substitute for Christ, and yet God chose to substitute Christ for wicked mankind. Did you catch that? Man chose to substitute. It, what man rejected Pilate's offer to reject a wicked man for an innocent man. And yet God chose to substitute His innocent Son for wicked man. It's overwhelming in 1 Peter 3.18. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring you to God after being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. This, this whole hilarious scene that's playing out is all part of God's sovereign will. God is, is, the Heavenly Father is watching this whole thing go down and He's thinking to Himself, yes, 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 yes. None of this is passing by Him as a shock. He sees the way His Son's being treated. He sees the way mankind is rejecting His Son. He sees the cries for Barabbas, Barabbas, and the Heavenly Father is thinking to Himself, everything is going according to plan. It's crazy. That's how much God loves us. Now if you do remember me, let's pick up the story in the beginning of chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had Him flogged. No real description there. It's like saying, then they had Jesus crucified. There's no reason for the writers of the Gospels to explain to the readers what flogging was. It just, it was so horrendous and understood that they didn't need to go into detail. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and threw a purple robe around him. And they repeatedly came up to him and said, Hail! 
king of the Jews, and were slapping him in, the, in his face. Pilate went outside again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him outside to you to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Here is the man. Echo homo in Latin. It's a very popular phrase. When the chief priests and the temple police saw him and they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! And Pilate responded, Take him and crucify him yourselves, for I find no grounds for charging him. We have a law, the Jews replied to him, and according to that law he must die because he made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, You're not talking to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been for you, given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. From that moment, Pilate made every effort to release him. But the Jews shouted, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's bench in a place called the Stone Pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about six in the morning. Then he told the Jews, Here is your king. But they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Should I crucify your king? Listen to these incredible words. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priest answered. Wow. Point four. You have the guiltless one beaten with the guilty. Still, Pilate, uncertain about his innocence, his guilt, decides that maybe if they won't take Barabbas, maybe I can just beat the guy mercilessly and they'll accept that. So he takes him out and to appease their lust for blood, he takes him out and he has him flogged. Now this was, to Pilate, this was an executive decision. To the Roman soldiers, this was sport. And this is where it got really ugly. And we'll spare all the details, but just to say that they lashed Jesus to the point where flesh and sinew and muscle were torn from his back and his sides. And then once they had gotten him to that position where he probably couldn't stand or even maintain any reasonable level of consciousness bleeding out on the pavement there, they hoist him up and they take a crown of spike thorns and they jam it into his head, most likely with some sort of baton. They beat it into his head and then they took a purple cloth. Now purple in those days was made through uh, a type of snail, sea urchin animal, something like that. It was a very... Um, the purple is associated with wealth and royalty for a reason because this was a costly color to have. 
So they took one of their royal robes. Now the dye that made this was uh, toxic. To throw this on this man's open, bleeding back, uh, his scourged back, uh, was probably as painful or nearly as painful as the scourging that he had just undergone. They jammed this dye-packed robe onto his back. They jammed this uh, uh, crown into his head. We know from Scripture that his, his beard was torn out. They, they blindfolded him. They beat him across the face asking him to, playing games with him, saying, now prophesy who hit you, as they continue to slap him. And yet our Lord just remains silent. He'd done nothing wrong. And here he is, the guiltless one, suffering in silence. To be honest with you, a Roman scourging was enough to kill most men by, by itself. It was not uncommon for a person to be um, sentenced to crucifixion and not even make it to the cross because of the scourgings that they would receive. But we know, according to Scripture, that it was prophesied for Christ in keeping with the Word, He had to go to the cross. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, it says, I gave my back to those who beat me in my cheeks, to those who tore out my beard, I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. If you don't think the Word of God is complete and whole and synoptic and um, plenary, complete, it, you, if you don't believe that the Old Testament and the New Testament exist in perfect harmony, how can you read this and not understand that Isaiah was prophesying, prophesying about the suffering of our Savior in the midst of His arrest. Lastly, this morning, the hilarity of this and how Jesus was wronged. Here you have the King of the world brutalized as a political pawn. The one who holds all power the sovereign king of all eternity, brutalized as a political pawn. The Jews wanted an authorized murder. That's what they wanted. They wanted a legalized, authorized murder. And Pilate was the one that would have to give it to them. Pilate wanted anything but an insurrection. So here they are, stuck in the middle. They want Jesus killed. Pilate doesn't want an insurrection. So the only thing left to happen is somebody's going to have to give. And it's Pilate. We know that. Think about this scene. When the, when, so because the Jews wouldn't go into the praetorium, because Pilate, uh, Jesus was inside being judged, Pilate had to keep playing this almost, it's almost like a, a play that's playing out in scenes. Pilate goes in, speaks to Jesus. Pilate comes out, speaks to the Jews. Pilate goes in, speaks to Jesus. Pilate comes out and speaks to the Jews. Pilate has Jesus flogged. Jesus comes back to the praetorium. And then Jesus speaks to the Jews. And then he brings Jesus out. Now, finally, they're seeing Jesus standing before him for the first time since he's been flogged. He has this crown of thorns on his head. He has this purple robe on his back. And you you can sense like the... the 
the seething and the hatred is getting palpable at this moment. He rolls Jesus out, and now the crowd is seeing Him, and the religious leaders are seeing Him for the first time. And this crown on His head and the robe on His back, they must have just been enough to send them over the edge. They're whipped into a frenzy, and they begin to cry out, Crucify! 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 And Pilate tries again to talk to Jesus, reminding Him that He has the authority to clear Him. Look, admit to something. Say something and maybe I can take care of this for you. And yet Jesus remains silent except to say one thing. You have no authority. You say you have authority. You don't have authority. My goodness. If you really wanted to seal your faith, that was like the last thing he needed to say to Pilate at that moment. But is it true? Yes. Look, church, it's easy to sit in the way. It's easy to, I go to bed last night and my, my iPad and my phone are just dinging with these alerts, right? Another terror attack in London. Dozens more people injured and killed. People running through the streets with long knives, stabbing innocent people in restaurants and nightclubs. It's almost, almost like we're getting used to this. And it's easy to look at the world and say, this place is spiraling out of control. It's a lost cause. And I just want to remind you that the innocent Lamb of God, who is also King over all of eternity, still stands in control. And even if even if Islam grows as a world religion, which they're predicting that it will in the United States of America by the year 2050, They're saying that Islam will be a larger religion than Christianity in the United States. Even if it grows to that point, is Christ still not authority and ruler and king over all? Absolutely. No matter what happens in our lives, no matter what happens in the world, no matter what, how dark the days seem to be, Christ is still in control. He stands before Pilate. Pilate believes he holds this man's destiny in his hands. In essence, what Christ is saying to Pilate is, no, it's me who holds your destiny in my hands. And you're about to play the whole thing out. Amazing. Crucify him, they say. And in an astonishing moment of clarity, he says, nope. The authority is all mine. And guess what, Pilate? You're just a piece in God's big plan of redemption. And I want to close with what I think is the most heartbreaking statement of this whole entire scenario. It's when the Jews look at Jesus, begin hollering, crucify Him, crucify Him, and Pilate's response to them is, look, here's your king. And what do they say? They say, just a little while ago, we can't come in to the praetorium because we'll defile ourselves for the Passover. We're so religious. We're so haughty, pious, and perfect and clean. We can't defile our beautiful selves because it's the Passover. Here we are, one chapter later, and what are they saying? We have no king but Caesar. How ridiculous is that? 
We don't want those crazy eagles on top of those poles that you carry around because that's idolatry. But we are quite content. Whatever it takes to kill this man, to get him murdered, we'll say whatever it takes. We have no king but Caesar. Blasphemy. And yet, what are they killing Jesus for? You remember? Blasphemy. That's what they accused him of. They were killing Jesus because they claimed that he set himself up to be equal with God, that he set himself up to be king. And yet now, in order to get him killed, they cry out to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. Give me a break. How fickle we are as human beings to think we can manipulate God, that we can manipulate our situation to get whatever it is that we want. Church, let's just pray as we close. I want us to be reminded of how significant of an event this was that was going down here. This was spiritual forces at war behind the scenes. And every step of the way, the Lord's plan was being played out. And the innocent Lamb of God was taking one more step towards securing our salvation. Remember last week when it said, they, they came in the garden and they said to Him, um, we're here seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And the Scripture says, and Jesus, knowing all things that were to come, came forward. Jesus Christ knew all this. He knew this conversation with Pilate was going to happen. He knew the beatings, the scourging, the tearing of his beard, the spitting, the, the crown of thorns, the carrying of the cross, and all the things that are yet to come. He saw them all in his mind's eye. He knew it. And yet He came forward because He loves you and I that much. Why be on mission for God? Why share Christ with your neighbor? Why hold an outreach event? Why have a block party in your neighborhood? Why invite your neighbors over to dinner? Why start a church or plant a church? Why move your family across the country to plant a church? Because nothing that I do, nothing that I do is ever going to be enough to express how good God has been to me. We do these things because Jesus Christ stood before Pilate and allowed Himself, laid Himself down to be crucified. Let's pray.